is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, British military on the ground in Libya. Is this mission creep? If officers are being involved in, in using communications and equipment, then I'm afraid those are both combat operations. And the forces gear up for the big day. Just to a royal wedding, would be amazing, really. My family's really proud, and it's something I can say later in life, I've been a part of that royal wedding. BFBS. Headlines. Rebel forces in Libya have reportedly taken control of a border post along the western frontier with neighbouring Tunisia. Efforts are continuing to help civilians who are caught up in the continuing fighting between government and rebel forces. Meanwhile, giving an update at the MOD in London, Major General John Lorimer has said the grievous situation in Misrata means that NATO has been focusing much of its air effort in the area. The chairman of Celtic Football Clubs appealed for calm as police investigate the sending of parcel bombs to the team's manager and two prominent supporters. Lord Reid said the club was working closely with police. It's called on the community in Glasgow to pull together. Thousands of alcoholics and drug addicts are claiming incapacity benefits, some for more than 10 years. Government figures show around 20,000 have been dependent on the extra financial support. 1,800 claimants aren't working because they're obese. And the Royal Mails launched a set of commemorative royal wedding stamps. They mark the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton in a little over a week's time. The siege of Misrata has come to symbolise the shortcomings of NATO's operation in Libya. We're meant to be protecting civilians, but for two months now, Colonel Gaddafi's forces have been bombarding the last rebel-held town in western Libya. It's claimed hundreds, maybe thousands are dead. But does the UN resolution allow us to intervene on the ground, and how far can we go? Britain's sending a small team of army officers to Benghazi to advise rebel leaders. The Foreign Secretary, William Hague, insists that's within the UN mandate. There is going to be no ground invasion of Libya. Uh, it's not only that we're not planning to do that, we're not going to do that. Uh, so, yes, the, the demands and the circumstances change from week to week in Libya, and we have to adapt to that. It would be very strange if we didn't, but we are not changing our overall policy or our strict adherence to the United Nations Security Council resolutions. Critics see it as mission creep and Libya's foreign minister claims it'll prolong the conflict but former army officer and now conservative MP Patrick Mercer thinks we need to be realistic. Whatever we say if, if officers are being involved in, in using communications and equipment and intelligence operations then I'm afraid those are those are both combat operations it may not be using bombs bullets or bayonets but it still leads to the protection of life and the loss of life, which, of course, is the definition of combat. It seems the suffering imposed in Misrata and the stalemate in the wider Libyan conflict prompted Britain's move. Kim Sengupta from The Independent has recently been in Misrata. I spoke to him earlier and asked him about conditions in the city. It's pretty grim, Kate. It's, it's a city under, under siege, as you know. It's getting battered every day. Uh, there are um, uh, salvos of, of missiles and artillery fire coming in. Uh, starts in the morning and and um, goes on until the evening. Now, as well as as receiving uh, incoming fire, there's also quite fierce fighting going on in the streets. For the people inside, uh, the life is, is is very hard at the moment. 
Why is it so important to Colonel Gaddafi to recapture that city? Well, two reasons. Really. One is uh, it, it's very close to Tripoli, his capital. It's, it's the only uh, opposition stronghold left in the west of the country. We're talking about 180 kilometers from Tripoli. So obviously, it is very, very worrying that uh, for, for the regime that, that this, um, this city has managed to withstand uh, quite ferocious attacks now for eight weeks. Um, so strategically, it is important for uh, Colonel Gaddafi to control this, this this rebel bastion, but also psychologically, that you know, it 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 shows that the revolution is not just confined to the east of the country, uh, but there are people in the west uh, near his his power base uh, who are obviously vehemently against him. Um, and if the country is going to be divided, which is one possibility, then, then obviously uh, the regime wants to control uh, as much of the country as possible, and especially pockets of resistance in its own backyard. The rebels in Misrata have certainly proven to be very resilient. What have they said to you? Do they want NATO to intervene on the ground, or do you think they can hold out without that kind of support? Well, your first point is, is, is interesting, Kate. Um, it, 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 what, uh, what struck me was the fact that how, uh, how resilient and organized they were, uh, especially compared to their, um, their, their fellow uh, revolutionaries in the East who have been uh, disorganized and quite shambolic. The rebels in, in Misrata uh, appear to be of, of a different cut altogether. They haven't said to me that they want uh, NATO troops on the ground. They are, are thankful for, for NATO airstrikes. You know, they point out that had it not been for uh, NATO's airstrikes, then Misrat would have been run over by them. Having said that, uh, they, they, they do think there should be more airstrikes. Arriving soon in Benghazi, of course, is the British team, as announced this week. What do you know about them? The people who are in Benghazi uh, have been putting, um, putting in a, a secure communications a facility between uh, Benghazi and NATO headquarters. And, and this is um, you know, vitally important uh, to coordinate airstrikes. What uh, we are told is that um, the British team, and, and of course there's the French-Italian team coming as well, will not be uh, playing any part in training the rebels, which seems rather strange because, you know, one thing that the rebels lack more than anything else is proper training. One has to see whether, you know, this... The, 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 the team coming over will at some stage move on to training. And do you know anything more about the makeup of that team? Well, there's one name which um, I've been asked not to, uh, not to publish, who has seen extensive action in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, the troops under him were involved in, in some of the most um, ferocious um, combat in one particular place. I've just recently been hearing about the first British person killed in Misrata, uh, British journalist Tim Hetherington. How dangerous did it get for you? Tim was an old friend. He did some. He's been, you know, he started off um, doing some stuff uh, at the Independent. Uh, personally, it's, it, it's, it's very tragic um, uh, for us. It, it, it is dangerous. Uh, the, the, the rebels, uh, Kate, in Misrata, think that there are uh, fifth columnists uh, from uh, Gaddafi forces uh, who are passing on information about uh, the few foreign journalists who go there. Uh, because the regime does not want putting what's going on for the outside world. I personally don't think that the situation on the ground is, 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 is so violent that anyone who is there will be at risk.
Kim Sengupta from The Independent speaking to me earlier. Well, I'm joined in the studio by BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Uh, Britain's move to put even just a small number of personnel on the ground will infuriate some countries. How well is Britain doing in all of this? Uh, it's not doing brilliantly, but then nobody is doing brilliantly. I mean, the interesting thing is, if, it gets, uh, if, you, if you look at these 10 guys that have got in, these are not pointy heads. These are not fellows that just gone in to do a wiring diagram thing. The fellow that Kim got, uh, got to, wasn't talking about, in fact, is a half-colonel with a whole string of medals from Helmand and the toughest side of Helmand as well. Do you know the, who it is? Yeah. These people are going in and they're making all the right assessments. Those assessments are absolutely crucial if we went in mm. under any guise. Now, how would you go in? You'd have to probably go in with the French because they're the only people who do it. Why would you go in? Well, one excuse. Now, I was looking or listening to uh, the, the Foreign Secretary. He said that this is gonna, they're not going to be a ground invasion. That's just terminology. Uh, what about human aid? Uh, protection. Mm. A United Nations resolution, these fellows that are on the ground there at the moment can make an assessment of what a United Nations uh, prote- food protection, for example. And, and, and do you think, uh, Kim was um, saying that, or suggesting that we may move on to actually train the rebels, do you think that's something that will happen? Could it happen? Well, it could happen. And, uh, to, you know, we can it happen under this UN resolution? Uh, no, it can't uh, under the UN resolution. We are there very clearly under the UN resolution uh, uh, to protect uh, the people. It will be argued, though, by, by training the rebels, we are protecting the people. Not necessarily true at all. Well, our reporter, Will Inglis, spoke to the former head of the army, General Lord Dannett, and asked him about the decision to send British military advisers to Benghazi. I think it's a logical extension of where we are already. I, mean, I think the concern that we've got is we know the strategic objective now. Mr Cameron, Mr Obama, Mr Sarkozy made it quite clear last week that Gaddafi has got to go. And therefore all steps necessary really got to be put in place to ease him on his way. And I think sending a team of advisers to help the opposition be more effective makes sense within what's been authorised by UNSCR 1973. And after all, we don't want to put Western British, French, American boots on the ground. We need to help the Libyan boots on the ground um, achieve a result as soon as possible in the best interests of the Libyan people. The wearers of those Libyan boots are largely school teachers, farm hands, and so on. They're not professional soldiers. Morally speaking, we're putting them up against uh, one of the best equipped armies in the region. Does there not come a point where we should help them with some professional soldiers doing the fighting? Well, morally speaking, um, Colonel Gaddafi gave up the right to rule his country quite a long time ago. I think these people are absolutely on the moral high ground wanting to get rid of him. Yes, we have an obligation to help them up to a point, but what we need to see in Libya is a solution brought about by the Libyans for the Libyans for the better government of Libya. We are backing uh, the weaker side in a civil war. Um, What could we, should we do to make them the stronger side? Well, Napoleon said that the moral is to the physical as three is to one. I think if you've got the moral right on your side, you're quite a long way forward. We do need to give them what assistance we can I believe, to make them more effective so they can achieve a fair result for the majority of the people of Libya. Do you worry about mission creep? Do you worry about this becoming a lengthy commitment? Mission creep is always a worry, but I've often argued and argued in the Balkans that a bit of expansion of the mission, a bit of mission creep, if you like, is rather better than mission collapse. We know what needs to be done. Let's help the opposition who are doing their best to do it as quickly and as well as we possibly can. General Lord Dannett speaking to Will Inglis. Christopher, the Defence Secretary Liam Fox has this week compared the deployment in Benghazi to the training of Afghan security forces. He's going to have a lot to talk about and explain before the Commons Defence Select Committee next week, isn't he? Yeah, it's next Wednesday. They'll hang him out to dry.
It's what? all about Libya. That's what they want. I've been talking to some people. Let me give you a quick rundown, sort of notebook rundown. Uh, Foreign Office is thinking on this. Uh, Mustafa Abdul Jalil, he's the opposition leader. They say, is he the only leader? Are the rebels united? Um, it's interesting that they are united to some extent. When they see missiles landing, they call them suckersies. Do you know why? Because they think it's the French that's doing yes. it for them yeah. and not the British. Mm. The feeling is that the airstrikes now limited. Gaddafi's forces are embedded too much and you sort of can't hit the things you want to hit. So it can't work by itself. In that sense, it's a failure. The original plan has failed. And the Defence Secretary is saying so little publicly, isn't he, about the mission? It always seems to be the Foreign Secretary who makes announcements. Well, at the moment, the Foreign Secretary, uh, the Defence Secretary hasn't got uh, too much to say. But it's rather interesting when he said, well, it's OK uh, because it's just like Afghanistan, we could get into the training role. That is not government policy at the moment. It's not the sort of thing that Mr Cameron is saying. Certainly it's not the sort of thing that, uh, that, that Mr Haig is saying. The other side of it is quite interesting. They're saying... Um, we want time on this. When we started, we say, OK, we're going to knock out Gaddafi. Now they're saying quite heavily, and I've been looking at some of the intelligence photographs on this, you can see why. They're saying, listen, it's going to take longer. That's simply what it is. And when you get it, talk, people talk about, is this mission creep or not? Every time you go to war, within 15 minutes, all the rules change. You can tear up the plan. So you're going to go it's with not what that surprising, really, that we're changing the plan. It's probably a good thing. Um, if our intervention in Libya is successful, what does it mean for the rest of the region? Um, and so little has been said about uh, other countries where there has been unrest. For example, Syria. Yeah. Uh, Yemen, Bahrain. Uh, OK, Syria tomorrow is Great Friday. Um, the Syrians are having uh, great marches tomorrow. The protest goes on. The fact that the Syrian president has actually cancelled uh, martial law doesn't actually mean a thing at Could, all. Would we ever intervene in Syria? I mean, we won't could... go into Syria. We won't, we won't say it. it raises the most interesting point, and this is what I was talking to people yesterday in the Foreign Office. Why Gaddafi? Why did we choose Gaddafi? to go to, for regime change. Weren't there a lot of other places that we could have gone in, including Africa? I mean, where do you stop? And what Why answer did, we did you get when you said that? Complete blanks. Really? They said it seemed a good idea. We thought we could do it quickly. And the assessment from the military was that we could do it quickly. From the politicians, we've got to do it quickly. And if you really want to know what the response was... Think, why did President Obama back out of the whole thing? He didn't think you could do it quickly. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rap with Kate Still to come this week, science fiction turned into science fact. How the weapons of the future could change the face of modern warfare. On last week's SITREP, the man in charge of training Afghan soldiers, Lieutenant General William Caldwell, told us of the huge improvements in the quality of recruits. The quality is, uh, is far superior than we were 18 months ago. We still get the same basic recruit coming in, but in tremendously greater numbers. Of every recruit that walks in the door, uh, 10% we turn away. We don't even let come through the door. But some of those getting through that door are working secretly for the Taliban. Officials are investigating whether rogue trainees are behind a spate of attacks in the last week. The head of police operations in Kandahar has been assassinated. Ten people died in a strike at an army base in eastern Afghanistan. While British and American generals have been talking up our progress against insurgents, they've also warned that the Taliban could try to strike back in the spring. So is this the start of that offensive? Dr Marvin Vine 
Feinbaum from the Middle East Institute in Washington is a former analyst on Afghan and Pakistan, Afghanistan and Pakistan for the U.S. State Department, and he's on the line now. Dr. Feinbaum, thanks for your time today. So is this a tactical shift by the Taliban, switching away from direct engagement with ISAF forces and concentrating on infiltrating Afghan units? Well, it certainly is a shift for the time being. Uh, that's not to say that there won't be more engagement as we get later into the spring and the summer. Uh, I don't know that they've given up on that, that they're willing to cede the large areas, that, particularly in the Helmand and Kandahar province, where they did lose ground. Uh, I think they're going to have to try to demonstrate that uh, that is very fragile and that they can take that back. But in the meanwhile, uh, the, the strategy of choice would be to go after softer targets, to avoid civilians wherever possible, and to try to hit the security forces, both ours and theirs. And does that infiltration go as far as the Afghanistan government? Well, uh, undoubtedly, uh, there has been, into the, into the ANA, the Afghan National Army, there, has been, uh, there have been recruits who have uh, been rogue figures there. But uh, figures I've seen indicate that at least half of these incidents have nothing to do with the Taliban, although the Taliban will take credit for it. Uh, they have more to do with, with personal grievances and, and people uh, under stress. So uh, it's not all Taliban, but what it does do is it gets headlines, whereas a skirmish that takes place in, in a district outside of Kandahar doesn't get regularly reported. Uh, one of these bombs going off, uh, suicide bombers, who killed uh, two, three, four people or whatever, uh, that, that does make uh, the headlines. Uh, Christopher, British and American commanders have repeatedly said the next few months are the real test of progress in Afghanistan. Do you think they'll hold the ground they've gained? There's no telling, is there? I mean, the, the point is, if you look at the Helmand Valley, they've got it. They've got it. They can probably hold a lot of that. What's still needed are these security bubbles that stretch right down to, for example, Kandahar. They're not yet established. That's the size of the problem. But I'm sure, and I think I probably learned this from Dr. Weinborn uh, at one point, the enormous influence on the solution to Afghanistan is, in fact, what goes on in Pakistan. And that's still not recognised by so many people who should recognise it. Do Dr. Weinborn, um, we're also regularly told a long-term solution would come through politics, uh, not the military. Uh, how do you think the ha Taliban will handle negotiations? Well, there, there's no imminent uh, likelihood of negotiations. Uh, we're still in that stage of, of talking about it, uh, looking at the mechanics of it, uh, what's not on the table is anything substantive as to what agreement would be like. We've got to be careful here that we don't impose our own notion about what a solution is. We tend to think in terms of power sharing, where you divide up uh, ministries, where you give appointments here and there. It's yet to be seen whether the Taliban are into that mode of thinking. And my guess is that they're not at this point. They still believe uh, that they're winning and that God and, uh, and time are on their side. All right, Dr. Marvin Weinborn, thanks for your time today. Could this be the future face of war? Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Unstoppable. He has only one purpose, murder. 
Ter- the Terminator was made more than 25 years ago, but this week a report's warned its nightmare vision of remotely controlled, maybe even autonomous weaponry is close to becoming reality. In the Terminator movies, the Skynet computer security system becomes self-aware and turns on humanity in April 2011. That hasn't happened, as far as we know, but a report for the MOD, apparently published to coincide with that date, says the pace of change is such that Britain needs an official policy on acceptable machine behaviour. Chris Cole has been following developments in this field and he runs a blog called Drone Wars UK. Chris Cole, good to speak to you today. Um, We already have pilotless drones in the skies Mm -hmm. over Afghanistan, but there's a big leap between a plane without a pilot and an autonomous weapon, isn't there? There is, yes. I mean, there is a very very distinct difference between uh, an automatic system, a remotely controlled system, and an autonomous system. If you think about uh, an automatic drinks machine, for instance, you have one input, a coin, and one output, uh, a can of Coke. Uh, While there's a whole range of, of, of autonomous systems or machines, basically an autonomous system or autonomous machines has a range of inputs, uh, from sensors, from pre-recorded data or whatever, and then it decides itself from a range of outputs. So there's a distinct difference between what is an automatic system and what is an autonomous system. So this idea that technological advances could make wars more likely, is that simply because human intervention is more remote as a result? Well, remoteness is one issue. Uh, there's a kind of geographic and psychological dif- distance between those who are launching weapons and the point of attack. Does it lower the threshold uh, from when uh, uh, lower the thresholds in terms of engaging or launching wars or attacks? But the other issue is to do with that there is uh, uh, no danger to one's own forces. If you have an autonomous system or robots, there is no uh, danger on your own forces. And that has, for many years, traditionally been a restraint on launching war. People, the public, do not want to see bodies coming back. And so there is a kind of restraint on launching war. If that restraint is taken away possibly there will be more wars more wars launched. And just to be clear, when you talk of autonomous weapons, mm-hmm. are we talking about weapons that would decide by themselves when to actually make a str- an aggressive strike? That's, that's in the future. That certainly isn't happening now, and the MOD are very, uh, very clear that they're saying that that is not being currently developed, but the research is ongoing, particularly within military industry, and this report is suggesting it may be as little as 10 to 15 years away. That's incredible. Um, Christopher, it throws up all kinds of ethical dilemmas, doesn't it? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, Napoleon was a gunner, uh, and he said, you know, artillery clears a battlefield, but get as well away from the battlefield so you can keep your artillery protected. The other thing is that uh, the Predator, the, uh, the drone now, is operated from a mountain, a Cheyenne mountain, and you can sort of pick up all the electronics you need, and you can go and hit a car with mm. two Taliban well, in it. The other thing, and this make point, that we, you know, it's weapons deciding for themselves. The WIO in a, in a British warship, for example, he doesn't, when he sees the incoming aircraft, he doesn't say fire. He's, his job is to say don't fire because... But there's the, still a human involved. It, but it's there, locked on to it already automatically. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose other kind of things that might develop as, as ethical issues is it, would someone operating a drone maybe thousands of miles away become a target? Yes, by no, well, probably by another drone. But the other thing is all the electronics that go with it, we come back to the whole thing about cyber warfare, anti-satellite warfare, electronics go down, uh, none of this works. 
and that is why we, we really believe that if there were to be a war on this sort of scale, one of the first targets would actually be in near-Earth orbit in outer space because those are the things that provide the information, the data transfer, etc., to the ground stations that is necessary for the Predator's as a simple example. Chris Cole, uh, the report also says that in theory at least autonomy could make wars more ethical because machines, they just don't get emotional. Well, machines don't, go, don't get emotional, that's true, and they can't feel sympathy, for instance, for a, an injured uh, attacker or compassion for innocent c- civilians. So I think the idea that uh, wars will be more ethical because there's no emotion involved is a very dangerous one. How close do you think we are of having weapons that will make their own decisions about launching attacks? Not imminently. I mean, this report says 10 to 15 years. I think that's a little uh, optimistic. I mean, as you say, uh, Kate, currently humans have to be in the loop. That's a legal requirement. This report says that that legal requirement is being eroded by drones, and we already see that the military industry is moving from a human being in the loop to humans being on the loop, monitoring many uh, autonomous or or, or unmanned systems. And I think we very much need to be careful that we don't move into a system of humans being out of the loop when it comes to to, to warfare. The next generation of RAF aircraft will probably be, be pilotless. Chris Cole from Drone Wars UK, thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Just a week to go now to the Royal Wedding and for around 1,500 service personnel that means a week left to get their role in the ceremonial surrounding the big day absolutely right. For the guards who'll line the route as the prince and his new bride leave Westminster Abbey that means plenty of late night rehearsals. Some only finished basic training a few weeks ago. Just to do a Royal Wedding would be amazing really. I mean not many people can say they've participated in something like this can they? I'm proud of myself and my family's really proud of this. Something I can say later on in life, I've been a part of that royal wedding all around the world and people are probably watching it, so hopefully I'll be spotted somewhere. Major General William Cubitt commands the household division. It has been a challenge to bring everything forward, which of course involves bringing horses back from grass early and um, doing inspections early and so on, so, so that's been a challenge. I think perhaps the big difference with this one uh, is that it is such a special occasion that we need to make sure that the troops remain focused on their job um, rather than getting carried away by what they're seeing. Uh, Christopher, it's not just the guards. There's a massive military role in the wedding, isn't there? Yeah, all four, so, uh, all four groups, you know, the, uh, the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, the Army and the Air Force, including, of course, the big thing is Prince William in an RAF uniform on the balcony, and the RAF will love that. Only one other royal has ever worn RAF uniform. Who was that? It was George V. Uh, which was quite a remarkable thing because, it, uh, sorry, no, George the Sixth, and he wore it in 1923, just what seven years, five years after uh, the RAF was formed. Everybody is going to be thinking about these guys. They're not toy soldiers, you know. Uh, yeah. In in a few weeks after the wedding, they'll be off to places like uh, uh, Afghanistan. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose um, we, never, we haven't had a military so busy at an occasion like this, as you say. Well, at an occasion like this, no, we probably haven't. I mean, the, the, all, all services are stretched. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But a very good example, uh, the guys from HMS Cumberland, mm. and she only got back at this past weekend into Plymouth to pay off from, from the Mediterranean doing duties on, on Libya. They're going to be lining the route 
Uh, it's quite a quick turnaround. But that just shows that it gives everybody, A, an opportunity, yes, because it's a big thing to do. But the most important thing, I, I suppose, just shows how small the groups are and how, if you'd like, such a mix of the forces. After all, we've got a, a royal prince marrying who's actually serving in the forces, and that doesn't often happen. I think very mixed emotions. The last ones. Very mixed emotions there'll be on the day, won't there? There'll the be forces. mixed emotions, especially at Downing Street, and whether, uh, whether the Prime Minister should wear a <laughs> line suit. I mean, I'm not sure what a, a line suit is. Uh, or, 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 or he's going to wear a morning dress. I hear he's going to dress. dress up now. I hear but do you know who's, uh, whose decision that was? Go on. It who's? wasn't, it wasn't our wife. dear Prime Minister's. It was Sam's. <laughs> was it? She said, don't be a I'm... nana. You know... <laughs> You know how to dress, do you? <laughs> oh, well, right decision taken, I reckon, on that one. Um, in terms of unresolved questions, what, what still needs to be sorted out in terms of military planning for the day? Uh, I hope none. <laughs> you gracious never know. me, it is tomorrow week. Uh, I hope that I hope it's, it's now rehearsal, 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 rehearsal. And the big thing, quite frankly, which we don't want to see really, is the security around this. Yeah, it is gonna... absolutely astonishing uh, uh, state. I mean, there have been all sorts of protest what, groups. What's going on behind the scenes in terms of security now? What will people be doing in preparation uh, for that? Well, they're doing rehearsals on, on, on rooftops, for example. I mean, all the major rooftops on the, on the circuit mm. uh, are, are covered. So London's never been safe, safer, really? Uh, there'll be more helicopters and horses on this one, I, I, I would have thought. Everybody, leave council everybody is looking out for the right thing. There was a thing in the paper the other day, they better not try it because the household cavalry was there. Well, the household cavalry better get on with doing their, doing, riding their horses and leave the real job to the guys that we actually don't know about. You're going to be busy on the day, aren't you, as well? Uh, I'm not sure we're going to be busy. Radio 2, I'm told. Yes, yes, we'll be on BFBS Radio 2, we'll be here. Uh, and then I'll be sitting there uh, on the day saying to people, now... That chat, no, 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 uh, not, don't get it wrong like the Prime Minister did about uh, Chris Ward of the, of the Navy when he thought he was in the RAF. That is a soldier, you can tell that. No, it's not a bearskin, it is not a busby or whatever, and tell him what it is. Christopher, we will be talking more. I'm sure you can squeeze us in before your big appearance next week. Um, uh, next Thursday you'll be back. Thanks You're for so your kind. time today on the eve of the Royal Wedding. And we'll look at the role played by more than a 1,000 service personnel on the big day. Plus we'll have discussion analysis of all the week's top stories. In the meantime, why not get in touch with us? Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Until next time, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.